Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Climate change can manifest in many ways, but in the last 10 years, the growing trend of increasingly severe storm seasons and natural disasters have grabbed headlines and displaced entire populations. The urgency of disaster relief is growing every year, and the cost of the recovery efforts is skyrocketing. This is what led me to speak with Rory Dickens. I was first introduced to Rory through John Bodner, a former student of mine from our Intro to Natural Building course who recommended that I get in touch with Rory to talk to him about the inspiring disaster relief projects that he and his team are working on with Recycle Rebuild on the island of Dominica in the Caribbean. In this interview, we talk in detail about some of the major issues facing modern disaster relief efforts and how they can be improved. Rory speaks about his own experiences working in many relief efforts around the world and what he's learned as well as how Recycle Rebuild approaches their recovery efforts from a local perspective that takes into account the specific needs of the affected communities and the resources that they have on hand. There are a lot of nuances in each of these cases, and it was refreshing to hear a viewpoint that doesn't advocate for a one-size-fits-all approach. So I hope you get as much out of this interview as I did. Now I'll turn things over to Rory. Hey Rory, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Pleasure to be on your show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, we're going to get to talking about some of the intricacies of the disaster relief industry and response and some of your original takes and sort of differences from the conventional way of going about things that have set your organization apart. And I've got a ton of questions. So what do you say we just jump right in? Sounds good. Let's go. All right. So if you could get us started with a little bit about your background and what gave you the idea to start working in disaster relief settings? So I, uh, I went to university in Scotland um, and, you know, I studied architecture and, you know, for the whole time, you know, my seven years of my education, I kept on feeling like there was something else. There was always more to architecture than what I was being taught. Um, and so I started, you know, originally actually working in kind of sustainable architecture in Asia. And, you know, I was working with, you know, impoverished communities to see how architecture could provide a solution to a lot of the problems that were going on in their, you know, traditional cultures. And eventually, you know, being so close to the Philippines, Hurricane Yolanda hit the Philippines and slowly I got pulled into it as a kind of, as a, as a line of work. Originally I started as a volunteer um, and, you know, I was just drawn to doing something 
using my architectural background, um, but in a different sense. And originally I started building schools um, in the Philippines. But when it really kind of became my career um, was when I actually took a break and I decided I wanted to take a break from humanitarian work and I went to Ecuador um, to continue my sustainable kind of architectural practice um, to build some bamboo houses. And by sheer coincidence, I was involved in the, the very middle of an earthquake. And that earthquake, um, you know, suddenly my whole, my whole career I've been thinking about how did it feel to be there on day one? You know, people were telling me their stories and for the first time ever, I was now there on day one telling the same story that everyone else had, you know, that I had heard before. And I saw the loss of life and I saw the impact and the reason why we're there. And, you know, that kind of really brought architecture home because for the first time I was designing buildings in a disaster response context that was about, you know, how I would feel in that building as well. Because, you know, it doesn't matter what disaster you have, architecture always kind of plays a role. And, uh, yeah, and whether it is, you know, a hurricane or an earthquake, you know, you seek shelter in your house and if that house is you know not up to the challenge you know that's that's a scary place to be and that's how i ended up you know continuing to do that for two three years that's remarkable you and that's i actually remarkable. have you quite a lot in common in our backgrounds i've also worked in the philippines including doing some designs for sort of disaster proof or disaster resistant homes mostly in the context of flooding i've also worked in ecuador and i've been around a lot of uh, relief efforts kind of between transitions and different places in fact right now we have a relief effort going on in the wake of uh volcan fuego which is actually visible from my house we actually saw the eruption and there's quite a big effort really? salvaging the the remains of those communities that were that were inundated um but yeah i mean i can speak from from experience too of of being in a lot of different places where the requirements of buildings and structures and infrastructure for that matter is uh absolutely different based on the risks and the possibilities of geological or, or heavy weather events that could destabilize those mm -hmm. types of regions. Yeah. So now tell me about some of the issues facing most disaster relief efforts and areas with room for major improvement. What inspired you to come in and hopefully do things a little better? Cool. So I've no, this is probably my eighth disaster zone, so Dominica. Um, and, you know, you actually start going to these places and you start seeing very similar patterns. So, you know, of course, some are earthquakes, some are, you know, hurricanes, etc. But, you know, every, it, it's kind of, it, the way that humanitarian work, it often feels wasteful. And, and it's a strange thing to say because, you know, when we talk about charity, a lot of the, one of the, one of the main kind of things that mainly donors talk about is how much my money gets to the, the front line. How much my money goes to the people who really need it. And a lot of charities can often say, well, actually, you know, maybe it's 95% after overhead. Um, but, you know, thinking about what does that really mean? Um, you know, 95%. So if we break it down and imagine architecture, one of the, one of the most key points that I like to think about is where is the material coming from? Because if the material is coming from in Dominica, as a classic example, abroad, 
maybe from the States, uh, maybe from China, um, maybe from South America. If that material is coming from there, that means your money, the donation money, isn't necessarily going directly to the community that needs it most and is actually going to these large countries that are probably nowhere near the disaster. And that means, you know, sometimes I start thinking, okay, well, 95% of the money goes to the person in terms of they get a, a material or a house, but what if the money was actually invested in the community? You know, what if when a hurricane goes through and flattens all of the trees, a nonprofit comes in and sets up uh, a logging, you know, a logging space or a sawmill, and then from that potential waste, um, you know, provides employment that then later fuels the rebuild of the country. And I think that for me, that's one of the major kind of major problems in disaster response. And you can see that in, in the Philippines, um, you can see that in Nepal, um, in Ecuador, you could also see that um, less so because it's not a land, it's a land, well, it's got it's a part of a major continent, but when you get down to the islands, and it's particularly the Caribbean, um, every co every country is outsourcing everything. And Dominica is in a kind of a crisis where they everything that is to do with the response comes on a boat. But Dominica was never set up to to run this way, so they have a port. Now the port is not. Um, what you would imagine as, you know, huge cranes lifting shipping containers off and they've got large, vast space for all these shipping containers. There, There's probably, you know, a hundred shipping containers crammed into this tiny little space and three guys are, you know, a few dozen people are managing it. And that creates, you know, problems and it, it everything gets blocked to the port. So when humanitarian agencies suddenly need all of this lumber and all of these screws and all of these materials to build houses, they're actually preventing other businesses from getting what they need too. And that's kind of a, you know, this was a very eye-opening thing for me, um, especially in Dominica, to understand this, this major problem of importation um, of goods. Certainly, yeah. The, uh, the response to a lot of these types of events is you know, increasingly well-coordinated and with better focus each time, but traditionally has often gone to support the same sort of industrial and outsourced uh, businesses and even governmental models that, you know, are quite disconnected from the communities. And it's one of the reasons why I was drawn to your efforts and wanted to do this interview because you had a different approach in that area. Now, how is your organization's approach different from these governmental or even non-governmental organizations uh, that go in after dis disaster responses for, for rebuilding? Sure. So Recycle Build was set up to kind of solve this logistical problem and, and work with nonprofits, um, you know, providing them with cheaper and more sustainable sources of materials um, that benefit the communities as a whole and looked at more kind of long-term development. So the original kind of idea came down to the very, very simplest thing was, um, you know, what is abundant after a natural disaster? You know, what what is the first thing aid agencies do? And that is ship in food and water. And, you know, immediately after Hurricane Maria, you know, large agencies, UNICEF, UN, all came in and they provided thousands and thousands of bottles of water, plastic bottles. 
Um, and, you know, communities take this and you see this in Ecuador as well. And then at the end, because the country is so damaged, the, the waste disposal system doesn't exist anymore. Um, they end up getting burnt. It, it, it risks the further spread of disease. Um, and, you know, there's no solution. Well, there wasn't. And then later on, you see all of the emergency tents coming in and they've got a six month lifespan. And then we transition to, you know, longer term shelters. And all that plastic and all that waste and all those temporary shelters are still lying around in the landscape. The tarpaulin is getting torn. Um, the bottles are piling up in landfill or on the side of the streets. And the, the nonprofits and the agencies are turning internationally again to bring in more supplies because they can't source what they want at an affordable price in the, uh, in, the, in the disaster zone. And where Recycle Rebuild wanted to change that model was that we started thinking, what if you know those materials, that plastic, that waste, was actually an opportunity? Um, and so we started looking at how we could convert that plastic, those plastic products, um, plastic items into products that could be used in the rebuilding effort. And you know, you can start simple. If everyone is building houses, um, the one thing that you know is every house needs is a doorknob. Um, and the doorknob is one of the easiest things to create. And what we do is we then scavenge and salvage all of that plastic, shred it down, and then uh, heat it up in a kind of controlled system, but all parts bought off eBay, um, and, you know, sourced locally, and then inject it to create a doorknob. And there you have something that is cheaper, um, is locally made, all of the, you know, profits or the value of it is gone to the community, and at the same time, it has done a service uh, to the landscape and prevented, you know, plastic pollution. Fantastic. That's really inspiring. Now, I, I would love to know a little bit about what the training process looks like. How do you go about finding people who are interested and available to do the work and get trained up on the, the machinery and the techniques required to make new building materials out of recycled goods? So, you know, everything that uh, Recycle Rebuild does is actually based on a community um, it's based on an idea developed by a guy called David Hackins. And David Hackins uh, started this uh, community kind of open source project called Precious Plastics. And the great thing about Precious Plastics is that all that information is shared and we're not really alone. What Recycle Build is bringing to the table is that we're, we found a problem in the kind of humanitarian world and the disaster response. But we've taken a solution that's actually being implemented in all different kind of walks of life. Um, and we've just kind of retrofitted it and, you know, seen what, what needs to be made for non-profits. So when it comes down to the machines, the machines are all very, very simple. So when it comes to, you know, working with local welders and, and you know, fabricators, the, the drawings are all there and ready. And we basically go in and we work with them and we, say, we slowly explain what we need from them. But the great thing is there are also videos online that demonstrate the working product. Um, so, you know, immediately they get the idea of where the end goal is. And I think that's a very important thing. You know, when you talk to community members, seeing the end goal of what we would like them to get to. And also, you know, you know, seeing the process, that they're all, all the videos of how to make these things are, are available. And then when it comes to kind of training, you know, we work with 
various different parties. So it is not uncommon for us to go to a beach cleanup um, and work on cleaning the beaches, but then have our machines there out in the open. And it's very, very, you know, apparent and very quick to realize uh, who is interested and who is not. And a lot of the machines right now that we're working with, the ones that we take to the beaches, are, are kind of hand-powered. Um, it makes it a lot more easy for demonstration, but also it's great to have people involved um, in that level. And you can see the enthusiasm and the passion of what, you know, often feels like something you only ever see on the internet or is only ever happens in someone else's country. Um, but when you're here, Dominicans are often saying, wait, you can do that here? Like this, this does this? And the, the excitement and the enthusiasm that goes through their mind, and you can see it in their eyes, is just amazing. And even more so amazing with the children. Um, we're in the process of working with, uh, with some of the, the primary schools in the area. Um, and then that's about developing you know, long-term education schemes. Because the reality is that, of course, we're trying to produce materials that we can use for... Uh, for the reconstruction efforts, but at the same time, there is a very, very important message that we need to portray, and, and it's the value of plastic. And one of the schemes that we're working on setting up is that uh, one of the local primary schools, to involve their kids, you know, plastic is everywhere. And, and it's in their houses, it's on the streets, it's on the walks to school, and it's in the products that they take to school. And all we're now asking them is to start collecting that stuff. Start collecting those items and we can turn it into something that benefits the school, like a bench or, you know, something like that. And then, you know, suddenly this idea of what happens to things when I recycle just becomes, it's there, it's in their playground. And, you know, this isn't really a new, a, a super new concept, but, you know, being able to bring it to a disaster zone um, is, is a really exciting thing. And, and recycling has often been out of the reach of the people in Dominica and, you know, there is a lot of enthusiasm with these people. They want this opportunity and it, it's great. Yeah, to be I can imagine because I can, I can think that even outside of disaster response context, there are many communities that are sort of dying a less urgent and slower death from the influx of plastic waste that is just choking up their environment. Would you consider the approach that, that you've taken um, in these communities to be something that could be implemented even in these less urgent contexts in developing communities all around the world. I can think, for example, how useful that could be even in my own town where I live here in Guatemala. Yeah, so we're in a really interesting time right now because I think plastic has kind of become a very much of a hot topic, uh, especially across Europe and North America. And you know, I think there is a lots of developing countries in around the world and, you know, in different situations who, where the people are interested, but they don't have the tools to, or the knowledge to do it. Now, you know, what's great about the open source movement I previously mentioned, Precious Plastic, is that they are, you know, empowering people all over the world in any scenario to start recycling. And their machines are relatively cheap. They... You know, you're still talking about the $500 mark to make a shredder and $500 mark to make an injection machine. So you're looking about, you know, 1,000 US to really set something up. But that is way more achievable um, than, you know, most commercial options. Um, and then the creativity really comes down to, you know, 
to the individuals. Um, and there are numerous examples that, you know, where we've seen people in like Patagonia or uh, Kenya um, who are starting these little workshops that turn into profitable businesses. And, and I think that's where the model, you know, where the model works the best is about where you're taking a waste product that necessarily, you know, has no value in most people's eyes, which is completely utterly wrong, but then, you know, can be turned into something that really does have value or starts promoting, you know, questions and, 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 and starts developing into a bigger idea. You know, and it, one of the most exciting things is to just, the, the most simplest thing we can make is a, is a tile. And the amount of discussion that develops from bringing a plastic tile to the table and saying this was made from beach plastic or made from salvage waste or this was made from just bottle caps of, you know, whatever, the, the conversation has started and you realize how much of a pressing issue it is in everyone's eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, even if, the, the greatest thing is just to start talking about it, you know, talking about the plastic problem, because then we all acknowledge it. It Absolutely. just creates momentum. But yes, 100%, there, there is room for every community in the world to have a small recycling center. And decentralized approach is, is always the best. I really agree with that. And yeah, that's very inspiring. Now, what care is being taken to steer the design and redevelopment of these communities in a way that will help to prevent future disasters. Because I know a lot of communities that get rebuilt after a flood or a hurricane or an earthquake, for example, are often rebuilt much in the same manner as they were originally. And, you know, the, the design is completely ignoring the fact that the original one didn't work. So how are you combating that and implementing uh, better design for the context in which these communities operate? So I think that question, that question is a really good question. And um, I think it can be split into kind of two areas, actually. When you talk about architecture and when we talk about kind of the more waste management um, context. And if we go to start on architecture first, I think it's, I like to call it the kind of like the three little piggies, um, where you have the first little piggy that had his house made out of hay. Um, and the second piggy had it made out of wood. And the third one had it made out of brick. And the wolf comes to all of them, and actually, in this scenario, all of the buildings fell down. Um, I think the, I think we need to rethink that analogy because what we often see in natural disaster zones is build the same building again, but reinforce it more, or put more money into it, turn it into a, you know a fortress, and I I think that eventually just becomes unsustainable because you're just building you know very tall buildings that that are never, you know, you're just reinforcing very, very tall buildings that are going to struggle in an earthquake, or you're reinforcing buildings that, you know, are going to struggle in a hurricane. It's expensive for nonprofits when the real option is potentially rethinking architecture entirely and how we imagine it. You know, there are numerous examples of where dome structures, because they're aerodynamic, uh, provide the best structure for a hurricane. Um, and at some point, where the, where the money needs to be spent is about uh, removing stigma of these kind of buildings. Um, and I wonder at what point a community will turn back, turn around to a nonprofit and say, or a government agency and say, stop building me the same building over and over again. I realized that 
you know, a dome structure is, is going to be safer. I don't care what it looks like. Um, and I think that's kind of the problem. You know, we just, we just end up adding more wood and more screws to make the building stronger. Um, but then in terms of, you know, in terms of waste management, um, as, a, as a precedent, you know, Dominica had uh, a recycling center. I use the word loosely. Um, it had a plastic shredder um, and people would separate their plastics. The plastic would then get taken to the shredder um, and the plastic would get shredded. But then it kind of ended there. Unfortunately, it didn't seem to go anywhere. It was not closing the loop. Um, and it ended up just being a compactor for garbage, more or less, and the plastic still ended up in landfill. Now, the, when the hurricane came, that building that housed that, that shredder got destroyed, and the, uh, building was also, the, the shredder was also very, very expensive and a specialist piece of equipment. The expertise in the island, never mind the materials or tools, just don't exist to repair it, and it's not on the priority list. Um, because it's an expensive, you know, sadly considered a luxury. Um, but in reality, you know, what should be done, and that's why we pursue this, is a much more community-based uh, recycling center, a smaller scale, but the idea that it can be replicated very, very easy. And actually, that's kind of our problem, because when we bring these solutions to the communities, the community adopts it and loves it, and, and you know, this, as a small model, it works. But the Plastic is a very, very big problem, and we can only service small areas or pockets of Dominica. And you do find people coming to us and being like, can we have it in this town? Can we have it in this town? And, you know, unfortunately, recyclable is just not that, it's not big enough to do that. We, you know, the idea is to sow the seed and, and provide all of the learn all the lessons available and share the information as much as we can so that other people can develop this themselves. Um, you know, I think the aspiration would be for us to come to a country, uh, put one seed in a town, and then come back a year later and find out that there's, you know, several copycats that have, that have done the same and, and created sustainable businesses that uh, recycle waste. And, and uh, you know, it would be even more exciting if they take their own twist on it. Um, but yeah, it's about decentralizing the approach um, and... and making sure that there's numerous spares on the island um, and that if something breaks, that it's in a simple machine that can be repaired with simple tools um, and that if they need something, that they know how, where to get it. And I think that's the most important thing, knowing where to find the replaceable part. And that's why, you know, almost all the items we use are just really off the shelf. You know, you're not going to find them at your local Home Depot, but they're definitely... They're definitely around. Fantastic. Now, my last main question here is after, I think you said, eight disaster recovery zones and the work that you've done in those places, what have been some of the main things that you have learned from your experience in these areas and sort of which of the efforts and projects that you've worked on have achieved their goals to, to your satisfaction that you would really like to see scaled up and brought to other places in the world? So I would say, you know, the, the hardest thing for, for someone to learn is how it feels to, to be truly scared. You know, I think a lot of humanitarian workers come from a life that is 
uncomparable to what or you know com- uncomparable to what people have just gone through and it is very hard to truly imagine what that situation is like and you know i remember watching videos of what the philippines was like you know moments after the disaster and and, and coming to tears but mainly because i just felt so bad you know for what I felt so terrible about their story, but I didn't know how I, how to really feel what they felt. You know, and, and going through that disaster in Ecuador really kind of opened my mind to really understand, you know, what it feels like to, to lose a family member or to, to, to be truly afraid of your life for a fraction of a second because you don't know what's going to happen. And then being in that community spirit of, you know, everyone else has just lost something. And then having agencies coming in and telling you that they've all got the solutions. Um, so, you know, I felt like that was a very important thing. And for me, Ecuador, the whole project that I did there was a, was a very kind of all-encompassing uh, thing. Because after I went through that disaster and I understood what people, how people felt, the last thing I wanted to be, the last thing I wanted to be in was a, a concrete building. Um, and yet, originally, you know, a lot of nonprofits were providing solutions that were concrete. And, you know, I, I, I felt safest in my bamboo house um, because it was the building I was working on before the disaster and it was a building that was still there at the end. And, you know, it actually turned out, and this was the kind of second lesson is sometimes the, uh, sometimes the cheapest option is actually also the sustainable option. Um, it may require a little bit more kind of opening your eyes and, and rethinking the approach you have to, to natural disasters and response. But, you know, for us as an agency, bamboo was so abundant, um, it, you know, and, and we could treat it sustainably um, using local products and, 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 and using traditional values that we were able to create houses which had a modern twist in terms of they were earthquake resistant and upgraded bamboo structures, but they actually allowed us to do more. They allowed us to have more impact because compared to a concrete house and trying to turn that concrete house into, you know, a fortress that was never designed to really withstand earthquakes, you know, we produced something that was, you know, radically different, um, but sustainable and, and saved the, saved the agency a lot of money, you know, um, and I feel that was my kind of the biggest lesson is, you know, using the same generic solution in multiple countries doesn't work. Um, everyone's experience is different. And, you know, maybe the best architect or the best designer for that solution is someone who actually went through the disaster. Absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. That's one of the things that I really like to highlight in not here and only here in the podcast, but also in the courses that I teach and that local and customized solutions are oftentimes uh, really the most, uh, how would you say, like the most long lasting, even if they, they can be cheaper. And there's a lot of forgiveness, especially in natural materials, because either they rego and regenerate quickly, or they can be infinitely remixed, as in the case of like clay-based materials. And I think that's what you've found in, in your different experiences as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, changing the material and rethinking the architectural design is major. And, you know, I just find it crazy that nonprofits who respond to disasters that are due to global warming, 
you know, their response actually just makes the future disaster more likely. You know, the amount of carbon that's in the logistics of bringing everything there, the amount of carbon about of doing the response, the concrete that is pumped into buildings, you know, are we not, okay, we're preparing for the next disaster, but surely we should start thinking about, you know, our carbon impact um, and global warming as a whole. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, before I let you go here, could you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you and your organization and where they can go to find out more? Sure. So, uh, Recycle Group Build has a website, of course, and that is uh, www.recyclerebuild.org. Um, we are also on Facebook, so if you search for us uh, for Recycle Rebuild, you will find us, and we're regularly updating uh, photos and, and little bits of information about how our project's going in Dominica. And the same goes for our Instagram. It's uh, Recycle underscore Rebuild. And we post there also. So it'd be great to have you follow us. And uh, if you have any more questions, I'm always happy to answer. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Rory. I appreciate uh, you sharing your experience and your knowledge in the field. And I really look forward to staying in touch. And this is a this is a, a topic and a subject that's really passionate. Uh, <laughs> that's a big passion of mine. And I really look forward to possibly even being of help to you guys in the future, seeing as so many of these uh, disaster recovery zones are popping up all over the place and increasingly in need of smarter, more locally appropriate solutions as well. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, absolutely. We'll keep in touch. Look forward to meeting you in person one day. <laughs> Marvelous. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. And uh, we'll be in touch. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.